listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Four guys decided to go on a camping trip. They were going to go mountain climbing one weekend. In the middle of the climb, there was a guy who fell over the ledge off the cliff, and he fell about 60 feet and landed with a thud on the ledge below. His three friends looked down over the edge, and they yelled, Joe, are you okay? Yes, came the reply, but I think I broke both my arms. They said, stay right there. Don't, don't move. We'll, we'll get help. And so they scrounged around and got some stuff they could make a rope out of, and they dropped one end of the rope down over the edge of the cliff, and said, hold on, we'll pull you up. And so they, they tugged and they worked and they got him about three-fourths of the way up. And all of a sudden they realized, didn't, didn't he say he broke both of his arms? Joe, how are you holding on? With my teeth. <laughs> Pretty dumb. <laughs> I, uh, I recently told another cornball joke um, at my house. And my son Caleb, who's seven, he said, uh, he said, Dad, that joke wasn't too bad. I'll give you an F for effort. <laughs> He's homeschooled. Um, but uh, I, I, wonder, I wonder if the way that um, we oftentimes try to help this hurting, painful world is just kind of by throwing a simple line out. And we forget they're broken. Uh, statements like this, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. It's not in the Bible. I hope you know that. That's not in the Bible. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 does tell us, it, it says that God won't tempt us beyond what we can bear. But certainly the Lord will oftentimes, I think, give us more than we can handle. That's kind of the point. I've been to funerals before. Many times, and people sometimes will say something to the effect of, well, I guess God just wanted him more than we did. And those, um, like, well-intentioned but oftentimes thoughtless statements, they're not helpful, right? Just throwing a line to a broken person. So what is helpful? (laughs) I think this sermon series has been very helpful for us as a church as we navigate the various psalms of lament because we are tackling some very difficult topics. But we're looking at those topics through the lens of hope and trust in God. The Psalms of Lament, with only a couple exceptions, will almost always lean into this idea of hope or trust. So we've talked about things like death and weariness and suicide and affliction and fear and waiting and grief. And even after today, we're going to address topics uh, more on grief. And then a couple weeks in doubt, we'll talk about spiritual strongholds. But in a lot of these cases, what we're talking about is the stuff of brokenness. It's just we live in a broken world. It's full of flaws. It's full of mistakes. It's full of brokenness. Today, I want to address something that I think might seem a little bit like all of them out there. It's going to seem like that. Today, we're going to talk about hope in the face of wickedness. The reality is we live in a wicked world, not just a broken world but a wicked world. And Psalm 9 through 14 gives us some language 
that we can navigate that wickedness with hope. Now, I'm not going to read all five of those psalms, but I would like us to read Psalm 10. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open those up to Psalm chapter 10. We're going to be there the entire time here this morning. And uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked restlessly pursue their victims. Let them be caught in the schemes they've devised. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who's greedy curses and despises the Lord. In all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks there's no accountability since there's no God. His ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments have no effect on him. He scoffs at all of his adversaries. He says to himself, I will never be moved from generation to generation without calamity. (laughs) Cursing, deceit, violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. He waits in ambush near settlements. He kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize a victim. He seizes a victim and drags him into his net. So he's oppressed and beaten down and helpless people fall because of the wicked one's strength. And he says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. How are we supposed to respond to the wickedness in this world? It's kind of a sobering topic for today. Do we respond with this que sera sera kind of attitude? You know, like whatever will be, will be. I think the way we say it in our day today is, you know, it is what it is. Maybe you've said that or you thought that or heard that. It is what it is, right? Is that how we're supposed to respond to the wickedness in our world? Or on the flip side, do we respond uh, with uh, just kind of springing into action and going in guns ablaze and trying to bring about change with every single injustice in the world? Is that how we're supposed to respond to the wickedness in this world? I think that Psalm chapter 10 is going to provide some clarity for us, even in the face of the wickedness in which we find ourselves. It's likely that Psalm 9 and 10 were actually supposed to be one psalm, both of them written by King David, but we have them split up in our Bibles. He spends over half of Psalm 10, the first half, describing this wicked world in detail. So what I want us to do is I just want us to break this down, and I think we're going to find some similarities with our own world. Verses 1 to 4, David describes the wicked as arrogant and prideful. The image of those Hebrew words is is the rising up of haughtiness. It's like the surging of the sea. It's like the waves that just rise and rise and rise and rise. That's the image that David is trying to give us with the original language. The word wicked carries with it the idea of hostility towards God. Hostility towards God. So, in other words, wickedness is the arrogant posture of rising up against God. That's what I believe biblical wickedness is. It's the arrogant posture of rising up against God. It's not just about sin, because there's sin that we confess, and we agree that we've missed the mark of God's standard, but wickedness says, I don't care about God's standard because I'm more important than God's standard. That's biblical wickedness. In, in English, in verse 4 there, on uh, the version I read a moment ago, uh, there's the word scheming. Scheming. Your Bible might use the word pride or pride in the face or something like that. It's kind of hard to translate here. The Hebrew word that David uses is the word af. And it, it literally means 
Well, it, it means your nostrils. <laughs> and you're thinking, how in the world do we get from scheming to nostrils? You know, th- those are not two things that we normally just put together real easily. You know, we don't have expressions like that. No one has ever said, you know, that boy over there's got a scheming nose. I'll tell you what, <laughs> you know, rascal. No one, no one says that, right? So how do we get there? Well, David is basically saying that the level of pride, the level of haughtiness has risen up to his nose. In other words, he's full of himself. He's full of himself. This is, I believe, why the wicked will say there's no God because there's no room for God. With this grouping of Psalms of Lament, we get to Psalm 14 and it starts like this. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. Wonder why? There's no room for God full of ourselves, pride, arrogance. The pride is at the root of wickedness. Verse 6 says that the wicked, they say to themselves, I will never be moved from generation to generation. (laughs) It's a prideful posture of permanence. It's the person who says, I can't be shaken and I won't budge. It's stubbornness, it's arrogance, it's immaturity to think that we could live forever without calamity. And yet, that's that's how David describes the wicked the person who has no room for God. But it gets worse. In verse 7, their mouths are full, one writer would say, of vulgarity, violence, and malice. Their mouths are full of vulgarity, violence, and malice. I don't know about your mouth, but a mark of wickedness is vulgarity. Maybe that's a different sermon. In verse 8, the violence goes beyond his mouth and it goes into his actions. He literally lies in wait for ambushing a helpless person to take advantage of them. In verse 9, it says that he lurks around like a lion. This is the exact same language that's used by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8, when he says, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Back in Psalm 10, verse 10, it, we find that the wicked are actually um, beating helpless people. They're exercising their strength over those who are weak, poor, and unfortunate. And I, I feel that our world is quite similar to what King David faced. I'm not sure that I need to take any time at all today to convince you that we don't live in Mayberry. Mayberry's a town on a TV show called Andy Griff. Okay, I'm just making sure. Um, I mean, really, this weekend is a perfect example of this. This Memorial Day weekend, if it says anything, it says our world is full of evil. And it's in need of people who can protect the helpless. That's why we have to send soldiers to fight for noble causes. They risk their lives to fight evil. And we're grateful for this. The older I get, the more grateful I become. Because I didn't fight but I'm receiving the benefits and the blessings and the protection of those who have fought for me. So today, we certainly give honor to those who have given their lives to defend our nation. And I pray, I pray that you find ways to express your gratitude to those who have lost loved ones in battle. But no matter what kind of utopian Mayberry society was hoped for a generation or two ago, we haven't reached it yet, that's for sure. And the reason we experience the same world of wickedness that King David faced is because we have the same problem in our world. The problem is sin. You see, the root of our problems is not politics. The root of our sickness is not society. 
The root of our dysfunction is not DNA. But the root of our brokenness is sin. Our problem is spiritual. And while it's not completely unwise to address the, uh, the aspects of wickedness with tools like politics and societal reform and research, that kind of thing, that will only address the symptoms, you understand, not the cause. So brothers and sisters, listen to me. We are people of the Spirit. And our world has a spiritual sickness called sin, and it has to be addressed with spiritual tools. And we'll talk about those spiritual tools here in just a little bit, so hang with me. Every time the will of God is rejected in the world, I believe that it's rooted in pride. Whenever someone chooses to ignore God's ways and pursue their own ways, it's like they're shaking their fist in God's face and saying, deal with it. The way that David puts it in Psalm 1011 is that the wicked have forgotten God. The wicked person believes and declares God doesn't see, and even if he could see, he doesn't do anything about it. He's not present. Let me put it this way. Right behavior is often the result of an authoritative presence. Right behavior is often the result of an authoritative presence. Years ago, when our kids were quite younger, uh, they were involved in a homeschool co-op. And that year they put on a Christmas program. And so uh, we went and I did my fatherly duty of watching the entire program through the lens of my Sony Handycam. Have you been there, guys? This is what we do, right? And I'm watching Ethan and Kaylee, pretty little there, and I've got my face stuck in this camera and all of a sudden I hear this big boom. And I pull up out of the camera and I'm looking around and I don't see anything. So I go back to my lens. A couple seconds later, boom! And I pull up, you know. And this happened several more times before I finally saw what was going on. My kids are over here, but over here is the choir. In the choir is Buddy. Buddy's five. Buddy's in kindergarten. Buddy discovered that the choir mic was right above his head. And he had the best time jumping and smacking that mic and elbowing his buddy and laughing. And this went on for quite some time. You know, jumping and smacking and poking and laughing and jumping and smacking and poking and laughing. And he was having a great time with this until the teacher came, right? Now, I found myself filming. I'm watching my children. All of a sudden, I'm drifting over to Buddy. You know, my beloved children, over to Buddy. And I wish I could have shown you the footage. It would have taken me hours to find. I didn't have that kind of time. But anyway, um, if you were to see this footage, you would see Buddy. And he's jumping and smacking and poking and laughing until the teacher comes. She's off the screen. You can't see her. She's just a couple feet away from him. But as he's jumping and smacking and poking and laughing, she pokes his shoulder. And he turns around and he course corrects real quick, right? I mean, he's having a great time, and then all of a sudden, you know, all you have left of Buddy is the knot of compliance. Yes, ma'am, you know. Right behavior is often the result of an authoritative presence. Remove the authority, and you'll probably get wickedness. Wickedness is like a weed. You don't have to do any work to watch it grow. It's called the law of entropy. Things go from order to chaos, not the other way around. You have a garden. You, you, you get it. You don't have to do anything to produce weeds. Just leave some space. And the same goes for our culture. We have a culture, a world that has willingly and joyfully removed the reality of God's authoritative presence. 
and I believe that wickedness has filled the void. Now, let's be fair in this discussion. I told you that this is going to seem like it's about all those people out there. Let's be fair. Let's acknowledge the wickedness in our world is not only something that exists outside the church. Wickedness lives here too. Because sin lives here too. We're broken. We're in constant need of Jesus to forgive and renew us as we maintain a pattern of repentance. You know, I don't, I don't believe that repentance is just kind of this one-time event that takes place upon our conversion when we're baptized into Christ. I, I think it's a pattern. John the Baptist would say that we are to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, produce fruit that is consistent with repentance, produce fruit that is worthy of repentance. So repentance is required because sin is stubborn. Repentance is required for us because sin is stubborn. We continue to turn to God. We continue to confess our sins to him. And because, you know, God is pretty stubborn too, he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John tells us. So I want to be fair in this discussion. Our world is wicked, and so are we. So how do we maintain hope in a world that is filled with wickedness? I I think I can answer that question with the way that the psalmist answers that question, and he sums it up in one word, trust. Here's what I came to say today. When we are wounded by this wicked world, we find hope as we entirely entrust ourselves to God. When we're wounded by this wicked world, we find hope as we entirely entrust ourselves to God. The psalmist, I think, in the text, he gives us three reasons to trust God. Now, the first 11 verses of this psalm reveal the wickedness in the world. But in verse 12, we see a transition here. Verses 12 to 14 starts like this. Rise up, Lord God. You know, the prideful person is rising up too. It's the surging of the sea. Up to his nose. Well, the psalmist says, God, we need you to rise up here. Rise up, Lord God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why has the wicked person despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand an account, but you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your hands. The helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. The first reason that we can trust God is because God has seen. He has. He has seen our pain. He's seen the wickedness in the world. He's not ignorant. The prideful arrogance of the wicked led them to believe that even if God did see, or even if God exists, I mean, he, he doesn't see. But the truth is that God does see. He not only sees the pain of our past and our present, but he alone knows the potential of our future. I'd like you to think about it like this. The wicked and godless world are operating with a serious handicap. They operate only in the present. They have no real assurance of the future. And in many cases, a very sketchy memory of the past. The danger of this prideful arrogance is that though they say that God doesn't see, the reality is they themselves don't truly see. They don't have a perspective that includes the past, present, and the future. But God sees it all. He sees all of time because he's above time. He notices things. You know, there's a great power in the ability to notice things. I I would argue that most of us probably don't notice things like we should. Oh, sure, we see things, but we don't perceive things. We get too distracted or busy. We recently found out that our son Caleb um, is colorblind. And though he is the only one of our four, or the only one in our family with 20/20 vision, <laughs> he's still colorblind, 
He still struggles to distinguish similar colors from one another. So like uh, when we're building with Lego, uh, depending on how much ambient light is in the room, he can't distinguish the dark dark green pieces from the brown pieces. And uh, this is obviously, you know, not the worst thing in the world. It's not a life-threatening situation, but it will probably prevent him from fulfilling his dream of being a Lego master builder. You know, that's where we're setting our sights right now. Um, When he was at the eye doctor this last time, when we found out, uh, it was striking. Leah was telling me, I wasn't there. Leah was telling me about it. She said that they put this book in front of him and her eyes could easily and clearly see the different images on the page. But for Caleb, it was just one big image. He couldn't see it clearly. You know, I might see the wickedness in this world, but do you know who sees it with laser clarity? Our Father. God sees everything. He sees and observes in ways that I can't. No amount of wickedness goes unnoticed. Some will argue, well, then, if if he sees all the wickedness, why doesn't he do something about it? I mean, that's really the question that the psalmist is asking here, and he's, he's going to give us an answer. Verse 14 tells us that God sees our trouble and grief, and he also observes it in order to take the matter into his own hands. That phrase, take the matter into his own hands, it, it gives the impression of strength and power. The wicked person says, you know, God is powerless, but actually he alone is the, has the capability to act. Noticing doesn't do us a whole lot of good if there's no power to act, and God has that power. God doesn't just stop with good intentions. He's got the power to take matters into his own hands. And every week we remember how God took matters into his own hands, quite literally. We started this sermon series on Easter Sunday. Our text was Psalm 22. It's the Psalm that escaped from Jesus's lips when he was on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also quoted Psalm 31 from the cross. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Since Jesus had Psalms on the brain, I just wonder if maybe Psalm 1014 was in there too. The helpless one entrusts himself to you. This might be a good time for us just to step aside for a second and look at the example of our Lord Jesus in the face of pain and wickedness. What did he do? He quoted scripture. One of my beloved professors in Bible college, he said this, when the world pokes you, do you bleed Bible verses? Jesus bled Bible when he was poked by this wicked world. This is how God took action against the wickedness in this world. He took matters into his own hands by receiving nails that should have been mine into his hands and his feet. Verse 15 pleads that God would break the arm of the enemy. Do you want to know how God breaks the arm of the enemy? He raises his own in sacrificial love. God is not oblivious to the arrogant wickedness in the world. He's already addressed it. 2,000 years ago in the death of his son. And I believe that now is an appropriate time for us to remember the solution for our sin sickness right now. Would you please stand? What we want to do here in this moment is declare a song of praise that declares what Jesus has done for us.
For those of you who are joining us in the house today, uh, this is an appropriate time. If you did not get one of those communion cups, I'd encourage you to go to the back of the room on those tables. You can grab one and return to your place. Uh, if you're joining us online, I want to encourage you to participate in this time of remembrance and communion with us. But we want to sing together. We want to declare what Jesus has done for us. And after the song is over, if you would just remain standing and we'll receive the bread and juice together. Jesus, you are the king. You are the high king. The one who gave his life for us in full surrender. So right now, as a church, as your people, we remember your body that was broken for us. So we receive this bread in your name. And we give you thanks for this. Your blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We proclaim this forgiveness of sins as we receive this juice. It's a remembrance. And so we receive this with gratitude in our hearts right now. We bless you, Lord. We thank you. Thank you for taking matters into your own hands. This was our greatest need. For this, we give you thanks and praise. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat, church. The, uh, the prayer of that song that we just sang is the perfect connection to the second reason we can entrust ourselves to God. First of all, God has seen. But secondly, God is sovereign. God has seen and God is sovereign. We see this in verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. The reign of God, it stands in stark contrast to the prideful arrogance of the wicked in verse 6. In verse 6, the wicked say, I will never be moved from generation to generation. And in verse 16, the psalmist says, actually, the one who will not be moved from generation to generation is the Lord Jesus, or is the Lord himself, right? The king. He will reign forever. That's what it says. It's kind of a simple statement, actually. The Lord is king forever. And the Hebrew word that's used for king is melech, which is kind of normal, actually, because you can look up uh, any king in the Old Testament and it will most likely use this Hebrew word for melech. So what is it that makes this usage important or unique? Well, it's actually the one who's writing this. King David. King David's writing this. He is the greatest king of Israel and he is calling the Lord King. Capital K, capital I, capital N, capital G. That's the kind of king we're talking about here. Um, for years now, I have uh, used a password for virtually all of my ministry login things here at Northside. I'm kind of boring. I use the same one. And um, used it for a long time, and obviously I'm not going to tell you what the password is. But um, what I will do is give you a little clue here, um, because this password, every time I enter it, it reminds me of something important to me. And... Um, it reminds me, the code language I use in this, it reminds me that I am a second-rate worship minister. That's part of the code, if you will. That I'm a second-rate worship minister every time I type that in. Here's why I do it. Because I want to remind myself 
that the real worship minister here is Jesus. And um, am I a worship minister? Sure. But the real worship minister here is the Spirit of Christ. I, I think that, um, that King David is doing the same thing here. He's saying like, am I king? Sure, I'm king. But the real king here is the Lord himself. That's the emphasis that he's making. Here's the point of verse 16. I can trust God in the midst of wickedness because he is reigning as Lord of the universe. And notice this is present tense. This is not past tense like he used to reign. This is not future tense like one day he will reign. He is ruling right now and he will rule forever. Verse 16 also tells us that the nations will perish from his land. This is both sobering to me and it is also encouraging to me. It's sobering uh, when I think of this promise. The nations will perish. They will. The nations, or we could read those outside of God's family, they will experience everlasting separation from God. And I think that a a more spiritually mature response to the wickedness in our world is less anger about it and more sadness. Let your hearts break when we see the prideful arrogance of those who reject God in word and deed. When the wicked face the consequences of their rebellion and were tempted to say, serves you right. You made your bed, now sleep in it. Uh, a more Christ-like response is to remember they've been deceived. <laughs> they've been deceived all the way to their destruction. And many have just chosen to walk that way. It's encouraging, though. This message is also encouraging to me because I, I realize that God exercises his sovereignty, reminding me that this land is his land. This is my father's world. This is not some God-forsaken place like we're sometimes tempted to think. It belongs to him. In fact, even in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, Jesus commands us to pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. In other words, even when God is making kingdom advancements into this world, he's doing it in places that already belong to him. He is sovereign king. He is the ruler and reigns over all of this. And we can trust him in that. Let me give you a third reason that you can trust God in the face of wickedness. And then we're going to give some rapid fire action steps. First, we're going to finish out the chapter here, verses 17 and 18. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere humans from the earth may terrify them no more. First of all, God has seen. Second of all, God is sovereign. And third, God will strengthen. He has seen. He is sovereign. He will strengthen. That's his promise to us. In the face of boastful wickedness, God tells us in no uncertain terms that he will strengthen our hearts. He will do what is just for those who have experienced the burden of injustice. And here's the beauty of this. He will be the strength for it all. He will be the source of power for it all. In Max Lucado's book, Help is Here, it's a book that he wrote during COVID a few years back. Uh, it was a book about the Holy Spirit. He tells a story about one night he and his wife uh, were just getting ready to hang out that evening, just enjoy it, kind of a normal night at home watching TV. And uh, it, was, it was a hot summer Texas night. Uh, they had the ceiling fan going. They're sitting there with, they were going to sit down in front of the TV with a bowl of microwave popcorn. And all of a sudden the power went out and their evening came to an abrupt end. The ceiling fan stopped cooling them off. The TV just turned off. The lights went off. The microwave stopped in mid-pop, you know. 
And um, a normal person would have just called the power company, shrugged their shoulders with the bad news, lit a few candles, and made the best of it, right? But this is the legendary Max Lucado, right? So he goes in the garage, and he gets the ladder, and he brings it in, and he has his wife stand up on the ladder, and she begins to turn the ceiling fan blades with her hand, which creates a slight breeze, you know? He goes over to the light switch, and he's flipping it on and off as hard as he can, you know? And that doesn't produce anything except just some sweat. So he changes his mind. He goes over to the TV. He starts shouting at the TV to turn on. Nothing happened. He was shocked because he is a professional communicator, right? This is what he does for a living. You would think he would have the powers of persuasion to turn a television on. Well, he gives up on that. So he goes back over to the light switch and he thinks, well, maybe if I try to do both. So he's flipping the light switch on and off. He's trying to yell at the TV from across the room. And in the process of his traveling, he about knocks his wife off the ladder. Now, this, of course, is dumb. (laughs) And obviously this story is made up. It sounds ridiculous, right? But do you see the point? God has always seemed to prefer to use the humble, those who will humble themselves and rely on his power instead of their own. Verse 17, David writes that God hears the humble and he provides strength for their hearts. We can have hope even in the face of wickedness in this world because when we humble ourselves, that's key, when we humble ourselves, God promises he will strengthen us. We're not given the promise that we'll be removed from the wickedness in this world or that God will remove all the wickedness right away. We're given the promise that we'll be strengthened through it. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus promised his disciples, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. I have conquered the world. We're promised trouble, folks, but we can be strong and courageous because Jesus has already conquered it. Keep in mind, please, that when Jesus said those words, he had not yet died and rose. Just in his being here, he conquered the world. His victory is sure. And church, listen, we are on the winning team. No matter what kind of wickedness rises up against us, like the surging of the sea, we can't lose. I hope this strengthens your hearts. So I just want to wrap up with a few rapid-fire action steps of what we can do to put these truths into practice. And I promise you, it will take practice. This is not something that we just leave here today with good intentions. Go on with our Memorial Day weekend plans, like this will be easy. It's going to take practice. It's going to take training. These four things, repent, pray, rejoice, obey. Repent, pray, rejoice, obey. First of all, repent. Church, we've got some repenting to do. There are some things that need to change. So when we turn from our own sin, our own wickedness, both the sins we've committed and the good we've neglected, maybe the best thing you could do today would just be to confess and repent of those bitter and angry and vindictive hearts or words that we've had towards a wicked world. Do you realize that Jesus took matters into his own hands for them too? Do you realize that even in the middle of his execution, he's offering forgiveness? Or maybe we just need to repent of the own contributions of wickedness that we've made. First of all, we need to repent, church. Secondly, we need to pray. We need to pray for those who are causing this wickedness. I think that Proverbs 13, 6 is really good, offers a good perspective here. Righteousness guards the person of integrity, 
But wickedness overthrows the sinner. That should break your heart. Wickedness overthrows the sinner. In our wickedness, in our pride, in our boastfulness, we think, I'm just going to get what I want. I mean, they ignore God's ways, but in the end, we are overthrown by our own sin. And there are plenty in this world who, in their own arrogant wickedness, they will ultimately die in that pride. They will be overthrown by sin. We've got to pray. We've got to pray for their redemption. You know, Jesus taught us to pray for deliverance from evil. He also taught us to pray for the persecutors themselves. We respond to wickedness rightly when we pray faithfully. The third thing that we do is rejoice. Rejoice. I I know Wayne talked about this last week in his message, but I just want to revisit our text from Psalm 13. It's kind of in this grouping of Psalms of Lament. Psalm 13, verses 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. I don't know who comes up with life verses. Do you know your life verse? I don't know who determines these things. I remember as a kid that Psalm 13, 6 was my life verse. I don't know who came up with that. I just remember reading that somewhere. And I remember as a kid who just wanted to play basketball. It's hard to believe, but it's true. I just wanted to play basketball. That um, having a verse that said, I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. Seemed dumb to me. (laughs) Um, I was like, I don't want to sing. I want to play ball, you know? And uh, I think the Lord knew, right? I think the Lord knew what he um, wanted to do with my life. This verse has been very important to me. Do you understand that Psalm 13, 6 comes at the end of Psalm 1 through 5? You got to go to Bible college for that kind of information. But um, Psalm Psalm 13, 1 to 5 is a Psalm of lament. It's the hard stuff. And what do we find the psalmist doing? Rejoicing. We've got to learn how to rejoice even in the heartache. Because here's the thing. You don't have to understand. You don't have to fully understand and make sense out of the wickedness in this world to find a voice of praise. Because God is worthy. Period. Here's the last thing. To obey. We must trust Jesus enough to obey his commands. You know, our worldly wisdom will say, fight, stand up for your rights. But the Apostle Paul, I think, gives us a right way to do this. In Romans chapter 12, verses 12 to 21, he gives quite a list to the church in Rome. We're not going to read the whole passage, but let me just pick out a few things. Here's what he says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That was the scripture my mom quoted to me and my brother all the time. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. These are God's ways. These are the ways in which we're to walk. The ways were to obey. So trust him. We overcome evil by proactively and reactively doing good. Jesus told us to love our enemies. So trust God's ways enough and obey them. When Martin Luther was enduring the persecution from leaders within the Catholic Church, he would often look to his associate and he would say this, Come, 
let's sing the 46th song. And so together they would quote Psalm 46, verses 10 and 11. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And it was in response to that passage that dwelt deeply within him that he would pen the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Do you know this one? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? (laughs) Our striving to be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name. From age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Are you overwhelmed? Do you need a mighty fortress? Entrust yourself to him. And today, if you're overwhelmed, feeling overwhelmed by this wickedness, and you need prayer, I I would love to pray with you. We're going to have our prayer team also stationed around the room in their red shirts. I know they would love to pray for you as well. I'm going to be in our decision point area in just a moment. Maybe you need someone to pray with and talk to. I'd love to be there for you in that. Maybe you need more time or you're watching us online and and you can go to the information you see on the screen and let us know how we can pray for you. Maybe you want to relinquish your life to the king, to the one who reigns forever, to be baptized into him or to place membership here at Northside or something else entirely. I would love to pray with you about that. You know, one day there's going to be no more wickedness in our world. No more wickedness in us. And the audacity of worship is that we can declare right now what is promised to us in the future. So church, can we stand together right now and let's sing of what's to come. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision.
This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.